We're up to the mitzvah of refraining from work on Shabbos. So we had already the mitzvah of not walking outside of the 2,000 ama, 2,000 cubit parameters of the city. We had the mitzvah of heralding the Shabbos with the Kiddush. And there are three more mitzvahs related to Shabbos for a total of five. We're going to try to cover all those three today. And that is the negative prohibition against doing work on Shabbos, the positive mitzvah to rest and not to work on Shabbos. So it's really two halves of the same mitzvah, A, a restriction against working, and B, an obligation to refrain from work. And a third mitzvah, a really interesting one, and that is to not punish on Shabbos. And that's a mitzvah given specifically to a Jewish court. If a Jewish court is in session, it should not punish, it should not mete out punishment on Shabbos to people who are found guilty of crimes. Now, because this is such a significant mitzvah in our life, I was thinking to elaborate on this idea of not doing work and getting into some of the nitty-gritty details. Of course, people spend literally years of their lives studying Shabbos, I figure we'll give it a little bit more uh, of a comprehensive snapshot than what we typically do. So what's this mitzvah all about? So the Sefer Chinuch tells us that it's a prohibition against doing work on Shabbos, not only for us, but also for our children. So even though children who, let's say, may be beneath the age of Bar mitzvah, they are still part of the obligation of the father or the mother. The parent are responsible to ensure that the children do not do work on Shabbos. In addition, we don't allow our servants, even our animals, as we're told in the Torah, again, this is the Ten Commandments, don't do work, not you, not your servants, not your animals. They are not allowed to do work as well. So your animal has to take Shabbos off too. Now, the Talmud has a discussion, what about my vessels? If I have a vessel which is an item that I own that's non-animate, is that also included in the restriction or not? And the ultimate conclusion of that is that no, there is no responsibility for me to have my vessels not work on Shabbos. And we're very thankful for that because otherwise you wouldn't be able to have a refrigerator operating on Shabbos or a light or an air conditioning. Uh, uh, that would not be allowed, but Talmud says that it's okay because the restriction against work is limited to humans and animals as well. Now, the sages tell us that really Shabbos connects to the major themes of our faith. And in fact, when we say the Kiddush, the mitzvah that we talked about last week, we talk about the idea of creation, that when we herald the Shabbos, when we acknowledge it, when we take a day off to kind of mimic God, God works for six, so to speak, and takes the seventh off, we do the same. We're, of course, testifying to the truth of the creation narrative in Genesis. In addition, beyond the invocation of creation, in Shabbos, we're also acknowledging the Exodus. So the two grand revelations of history where God showed himself, so to speak, in creation, creating the world, displaying his mastery, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and everything that we see he brought about, he effectuated into existence. We, we revisit that every week. 
and therefore we're testifying to the pillars of our religion and also to the most significant event of our history and the event that forged the deep relationship that we have with the Almighty. Now, what constitutes work on Shabbos to be prohibited is a very interesting question because if you were to ask me what considers what 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 constitutes work, I would say, well, schlepping something really heavy or working on a very difficult problem or we would we maybe every person would have their own definition. The Talmud tells us that there are thirty nine different categories of work, and each one of those categories is a category that has branches that stem out of that category. Moreover, there is a very large body of rabbinic edicts and decrees and laws governing Shabbos restrictions. So the most famous of those, of course, is the Mutsa laws. And that is anything that can be used or that is most often used for a prohibited act, not only should not be used for that act, but rabbinically speaking, cannot be carried or moved around if it could be used in that way. So for example, the, one of the 39 prohibitions of work is not to write. Well, you write with a pen. Can you handle a pen? Can you spin it around your fingers? So from, from a Torah perspective, well, you're not writing. Only writing two letters is included in the Torahitic level of restriction, and that is not to write on Shabbos, because that's one of the 39 categories of work. And we'll get to in a second where those 39 categories of work come from. However, rabbinically speaking, there is a rabbinic edict against handling the pen, because the pen is most often used for writing, and therefore the pen becomes something which is designated for a restricted activity, and the rabbis come along and say something which is designated for a restricted activity cannot be handled on Shabbos. That's just one example of a very large body of rabbinic activities that are governed by Shabbos restrictions. Now, I want to point out the Talmud makes it quite clear that all these rules are discarded in the event where you need to save a life. So I actually recently told my children, said I made a phone call once on Shabbos. I actually made a several phone calls because um, my son Yehoshua, he should live me well, he was born on Shabbos. And um, six in the morning, we got to go to the hospital. And we were living in Israel at the time. So I had, had a list on my phone of all these Arab taxi companies that they could take you to the hospital. Uh, and you pay them after Shabbos and they can kind of work that out. Six in the morning, they're all sleeping. All of them. So I'm calling one after another. No one's answering. So I call the Hatzalah, which is essentially the, the, the EMTs. And uh, a Jewish guy shows up with an ambulance in four minutes, even less. And uh, I took the ele- we took the elevator down and I got in the car. And this is the, the oddest experience. This first time I was ever in a, in, a, in a car in Chavez, in a vehicle in Chavez. The guy drove 90 miles an hour. He was in the hospital in, in, in six minutes from one end of Jerusalem to other end of the Jerusalem. And yeah, there's no, there's almost, there was no cars in the street. It was early in the morning, Shabbos morning. There's nothing happening really. Get to the hospital. I took the elevator, the whole thing. And like, where's Shabbos? The answer is, is that the Talmud addresses if someone, if there's a life in danger and that's even life of the fetus or certainly the life of the mother, then all these laws go out the window. In fact, the Talmud says that someone who quibbles with this, well, I don't know, is it really a life-threatening illness? I don't know. Someone who hesitates 
and does not take action, if even if there's a doubt of there's of a life being in danger, that is what what the Talmud calls chassid shota, which means he's a pious fool. He thinks he's pious, but really he's a fool. In fact, and in fact, the Talmud says the the quicker that someone is to act in a case of a life threatening uh, situation, the more praiseworthy that person is. And the Talmud offers a variety of reasons why this is so. Why does saving a life override Shabbos? And it gives several answers. This is in the book of Yoma on page 85a and b. One of them, very interesting, is that it's, the Talmud says it's logical. Why? It's better to desecrate one Shabbos and save a life and therefore have the person be able to fulfill many, many Shabbos's in the future. So you say you desecrate one in order to fulfill many other. Now, there is a second mitzvah in the book of Leviticus, which says kind of the same thing. And that is that Shabbos is day of rest. And the laws of the second mitzvah seem to be identical to this. The only difference is, is that one is a negative prohibition and one is a positive mitzvah. And that is the negative is don't do work. And the positive is to rest. And the commentaries tell us that, in fact, the laws of Shabbos are repeated 12 times, or no less than 12 times. And the reason why, it's to kind of impress upon us the seriousness of this mitzvah. And therefore, according to some opinions, the reason why we're told this added mitzvah is just to kind of add more power, add more oomph to the prohibition, not to do work, to know that not only if someone does it, they're transgressing one of the 613, but they're also missing out on a second mitzvah. That said, some of the commentaries, most famously the Ramban, Nachmanides, in his commentary to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse, I believe, 24, he says that the added mitzvah is telling us something different. It's not just a second prohibition, a second mitzvah that has the same laws as the first one. Rather, it is telling us that we should cease working even from things that are not included in the 39 categories. Meaning you have 39 categories of work, and those are the themes that are included in the first mitzvah, mitzvah number 30, uh, 32. Mitzvah number 85, the mitzvah of resting, that is more comprehensive. That includes themes that are not included in the strict letter of the law of the 39 prohibitions. And he explains, he says it's possible for someone to be able to sidestep all their restrictions and still not have Shabbos involved in their lives at all. Why? He says, well, someone could measure the grain and to weigh the fruits and fill up the barrels with wine and to move all his vessels from one area to the other. You know, Saturday could become the day where you're moving stuff in your house and this is all okay because you're not doing anything with electricity. You're not doing – nothing's prohibited by the letter of the law, but Shabbos is not at all involved in your life. And you can move the ha- the stones from one part of your house to the other house. You could move the furniture. And if it's a city that is walled, meaning it's a city that – because it's a walled city, it's like the equivalent of an Erev. It's the equivalent of the entire city being in one enclosure. And all the doors are, are, are closed. Well, then really the whole city is considered one domain. So you go all kinds of commerce, all kinds of engagement and activity could happen during Shabbos – 
And you could even find loopholes to doing work. You say, well, I'll pay you after Shabbos. Uh, your door, your store could be open. They could have some sort of bartering system. But basically, you kind of lose the entire spirit of Shabbos. And therefore, the second mitzvah comes along. The Torah tells us Shabbos on Shabbos is a day of rest, that it should be a day of cessation of work, a day of tranquility, a day of serenity, not a day of toil, not a day of labor. And that's the meaning behind that second mitzvah. So that's what essentially it's doing is that beyond the actual uh, letter of the law, third and category is the word, there's also the spirit of the law, and that is it's a day of processing, it's a day of consumption, it's not a day of work. Now before we get into some of the deeper meanings behind this mitzvah in general, I want to add the third mitzvah that I want to cover, that's mitzvah 114, and that is to not punish, that a court should not punish on Shabbos. Now it's a discussion exactly what that means. Uh, according to some, it's only limited to capital p- crime. According to others, it's even corporal pr- crime, like they don't give lashes on Shabbos. Regardless, uh, the mitzvah is not to punish on Shabbos. And this is learned out from the verse, not to have a fire in our domain on Shabbos. And what does that mean? We know one of the four methods of execution in Jewish court of law is with fire. And therefore, what it's hinting at us, according to at least some of the opinions, is to not do any of the capital punishment, not just this one, but all four, to not do any of that on Shabbos. Now, there's some technicalities here, and that is that the, the Torah tells us in a very general sense what we shouldn't do on Shabbos, and it essentially hints at 39 categories of work, and we'll get to that in a second, how it hints at it. But then it explicitly mentions one, and that is not to make a fire. So there's 38 categories of work that are not mentioned explicitly, and there's one that's mentioned explicitly. And Thomas says, wait a minute. If that one of the 39 would have been included in the same category as the other 38, why is there a need to mention it explicitly? So it tells us two answers, and both of them really are adopted in the halacha. Answer number one is that if it just told us don't do work, i.e. don't do 39 categories of work, you may have thought that the only way for someone to transgress that is if you do all 39 categories of work on one Shabbos. And therefore, it lists one of those, and maybe it was random which one it lists, but it lists one of those to know that even if you do one, and not just that one, but any one of the 39, that on their own, that would be its own prohibition. That's the first answer. The second answer is, is that the reason why it talks about not make a fire on Shabbos is not to tell you necessarily that each one individually is its own prohibition, rather it's to tell you not to punish on Shabbos. Now, to answer the question, why would you have thought that you would be allowed to punish on Shabbos? And, and this maybe is a good window into kind of Talmudic argumentation and structuring. But the question is like this. We know that the Torah gives us 39 prohibitions on Shabbos. One of them, as we shall soon see, is not to kill on Shabbos. And that doesn't matter if you're killing an animal or killing a human. So not knowing anything, if all I knew is that there's 39 categories of work that we don't do on Shabbos, one of them is not to kill. I would know, ergo, not to execute someone on Shabbos. 
why would I think that I could punish someone on Shabbos when that constitutes one of the third nine categories of work? It's a similar kind of question. The Talmud tells us that we can transgress Shabbos in order to save a life, but it derives that from some sort of source, the, the verse or the theory or that gives a list of all kinds of reasons why saving a life overrides Shabbos. Here we're told that you cannot override Shabbos to punish someone. But why would I have thought to begin with that you could? The only reason why I would need to be told that you cannot punish someone on Shabbos is if I would have thought, means absent the verse, I would have thought that you could. So what's that reason? So Talmud says like this, we know that sacrifices override Shabbos. Why? Because what happens in the temple on Shabbos is there are certain sacrifices that are brought. Well, Shabbos, how do you slaughter an animal on Shabbos? Well, there's a special verse that tells us that we're allowed to do, the, the, the Kohanim, the priests in the temple, are allowed to do the mitzvos of the temple, the activities of the temple, the sacrifice of the temple, even on Shabbos, even though they constitute work on Shabbos under other conditions or under other, in, in different settings. So essentially, we know for sure sacrifices override Shabbos, point number one. We know also that execution of a guilty, of, of, of a party guilty of capital crime overrides sacrifices. How so? Let's say you have a Kohen, a priest, who committed a capital offense and was found guilty in court of law. And then they escaped and they ran to the temple. And they start doing a sacrifice. So they're in the middle of all of a sacrifice. Must the court wait till the sacrifice is over before they execute him? Or can they just grab him and worry about the sacrifice later? Essentially, it's the question, what's more important? Or what overrides what? The execution overrides sacrifices. Or sacrifices overrides execution. So there's a verse, Mi'im Mizbechite Kachan Lamus. We read a few weeks ago in the Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 21, that if someone is guilty of a capital crime, even if he's on top of the altar, you take him to execute him. So we see, on one hand, sacrifices override Shabbos. On the other hand, we see that executions override sacrifices. So if A is stronger than B and B is stronger than C, you would assume that A is stronger than C. So executions are stronger than sacrifices because executions override sacrifices. Sacrifices are stronger than Shabbos. You would have thought executions also override Shabbos. And therefore, if we weren't, we weren't told to the contrary, you would have said, hey, I could prove to you that we should execute someone on Shabbos. Why? Because again, just work this quickly. Executions override sacrifices. Sacrifices override Shabbos. Executions ergo should override sacrifices, uh, Shabbos as well. And therefore, it comes along the verse saying, no, 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 don't make that calculation. You cannot execute someone on Shabbos. Okay, so I want to, I want to expand on the idea in general of Shabbos. What's the, what's the spirit of the law? What's the, what's the objective? What we're we trying to achieve? Um, and also to talk about the third and categories of work, how they actually play, play out in a practical way. Some of them, of course, we can't cover it all in, in one sitting. So the Talmud tells us that Shabbos is equal to all of Torah combined. There's something about Shabbos that really is representative of the whole Jewish mission at large. The Talmud tells us, points out that there's three mitzvot in the Torah that are called an os. An os is the Hebrew word for a sign. 
a sign between the Jewish people and God. And those three are the circumcision, the tefillin, and Shabbos. So, for example, the Talmud says, why don't we wear tefillin on Shabbos? The reason why we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos is because we need to have two signs testifying on our relationship with God. And therefore, during the week, we have our circumcision and we have the tefillin. Whereas on Shabbos, we uh, we have Shabbos itself. The whole day is a sign. It's kind of like the ID. And you have two of them and that's 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 good enough. All you need is two. Uh, now, the Chavetz Chaim of Blessed Memory, he used to say is that – he used to give an example. What does it mean like this? There's a sign connecting Jews to God on Shabbos. So his example was you have a store. Let's say a store sells shoes. And there's a sign outside of the door. You know, it says, it says Joe's Shoe Store. So what happens? Joe wants to go on vacation. He goes wants to go to a week to Bermuda. Well, the sign is still there. People go there. They want to buy shoes. There's just maybe it says on the door, we'll be back, but we know the store is still active. You can take maybe even three months off, but so long as the sign is there, the store is active. The second Joe takes down the sign, people realize, okay, this, 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 this activity does not exist anymore. Similarly, Shabbos, it's the, it's the one thing, says the Chavetz Chaim, that is the, so to speak, the ID of the Jew. So long as someone has this, even if they have nothing else, the sign is still standing. I'm a Jew. I still have that close bind with God. And that's perhaps why it's such a significant principle. We're warned about it a dozen times. There's many draconian laws surrounding it. And it's a central pillar and tenet of our religion. Now, Rav Hirsch of Blessed Memory, he, he would always point out that it's, it's a mistake to think of Shabbos as a million restrictions about what can't I do. That, of course, is part of the law, but the overall objective is to have the rest. It's to have the commune with God. It's to have that spiritual serenity where you could kind of turn into a certain mode and experience a close relationship with God. Uh, the reason why we have Shabbos is because Hashem loves us and wants to have a day where he spends time with us, so to speak. However, what's the problem? The problem is, is that there's all kinds of activities, activities that we do that make us think and make us behave in a way that we cannot have that special serenity and that special tranquility. And therefore, the restrictions are all there to enable, to facilitate the rest and that peace of mind that we could have that positive experience of the Shabbos bliss. And I'll say just personally from experience, I don't feel like Shabbos is a burden, like I'm like I'm tiptoeing around eggshells. Because once you get used to the restrictions, that's just clearing the path, enabling and facilitating the wonderful day of of, of possibilities of opportunities. It's also been pointed out, and this is maybe related to the more broader theme of Shabbos, that the 39 categories of work are categories of creative work. Uh, so for example, schlepping something, you move a couch, you could do that on Shabbos because it's not creative work. It's not, it's not creating something new or, or a new situation or a new status that wasn't there prior. By season to create, by kind of withholding from our creative capacities, we do get reminded 
of God, who ultimately is the creator and is the one that doles out to us the ability to be creators and to be creative throughout the week. But I want to talk uh, briefly about the 39 categories of work. Uh, the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 49b, tells us that there's 39 categories of work and these correspond to the activities of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. And Rashi points out that in many, many places in the Torah, the building of the tabernacle is juxtaposed to the restriction of Shabbos. We're told that we're allowed, we're supposed to build a tabernacle, but not on Shabbos, meaning that everything that we need to do to build a tabernacle is something that we cannot do on Shabbos. And there is somewhat of an academic disagreement. And the reason why it's academic is because it doesn't have any practical implications. It's only theoretical. But some hold that the 39 categories of work related to the tabernacle are the 39 activities needed to build the tabernacle. If you wanted to start with materials or start with nothing and get to the tabernacle, there's 39 distinct different activities that you need to do to get to the final result. So for example, you need sheep's wool, so you have to shear the sheep. You need to have dyes for the wool, so you have to actually produce the dyes. Well, what are all the steps needed to produce the dyes, etc.? Alternatively, it's not about building the tabernacle. It's the daily operations of the tabernacle. Once you have a built tabernacle, but now you have to engage in daily activities, daily operations, that would be also 39 categories of work, the same 39 categories of work that, again, that that correlation between activities of the tabernacle and prohibitions of Shabbos. So, for example, uh, the 11th of the 39 categories is using heat to make food. But the question is, is that baking or is that cooking? They're both prohibited. But the question is, are we talking about cooking, so to speak, the dye that's used for the furs and that would be if we understand that the prohibition is based upon building the tabernacle or is it baking and that's used for baking the showbreads that were baked in the temple every week. But again, that's an academic disagreement because the bottom line is that all 39 categories of work are unanimous on both lists. The only question is how you got there. What's the, what's the precise connection between the tabernacle and Shabbos? Now, I just want to point out briefly that there is not just a scriptural connection between the tabernacle and Shabbos. There's also a philosophical, theological connection uh, about what we're trying to do with the tabernacle. What we're trying to achieve with the tabernacle and with Shabbos are the same, and therefore they're not just randomly connected. There's a deep, intimate connection uh, that is a subject of a different discussion. Now, the way this is uh, formatted is that the Talmud tells us that there's 39 categories of work. The categories are called avos, or av for singular. Av means a father. And the idea is that there's 39 fathers, or general categories of work, but each one of those categories has a general premise. The premise of the father, and then the child, or the subcategory, is something which is not an identical activity to the father, but it falls into the same premise of the father, and therefore it too is included in the prohibition. That's why it's called categories of work, not activities of work, because these activities are really a category that has subcategories included under that rubric. So for example, 
One of the 39 categories of work is planting. Can I plant on Shabbos? The premise of planting is promoting plant growth in any way. And therefore, and therefore watering plants, while not precisely planting, it is a subcategory because it's related to the premise of planting, and therefore it will be considered a subcategory of that general category. It is a child, so to speak, of that father. I want to quickly run through the third categories of work and give some examples of how they actually play out. The first one is called choresh. It means to plow, and that is when you prepare soil for planting. That's the premise. So again, plowing is the actual general category of the father. The premise of that is to prepare soil for planting. So what would be an example of an activity that's not actually plowing, but is similar to the premise of plowing? That would be, for example, weeding. You clear away the weeds. That is also preparing the soil for planting. And therefore, even though it's not exactly plowing, it's under the, it's a subcategory of, of, of plowing and it would be included. Um, so if someone to remove uh, rocks or thorns from the field, spreading out fertilizer, etc., that will be included under the category of the first one. And there's planting, which we said earlier is promoting plant growth. Uh, an interesting example of this would be, and again, this is something that you would not know unless you're kind of learned in some of the, uh, in some of the laws of, of Shabbos. Suppose someone has a house plant and they want to give the house plant sunlight. So they want to just open the curtains. It seems like it's a very benign activity, but it is promoting plant growth. So it will be a subcategory of planting. It doesn't doesn't seem to be at all similar to planting. It's not the same activity, but it's the same premise, and therefore it would be uh, an example of that as well. Uh, Another thing, again, these are things that we have to get used to and we have to learn. Uh, Another example of this, uh, spitting on grass. Spittle has some water in it. Uh, You're spitting on the grass. You're in a very minute way. You're promoting plant growth. That would be included in this. Uh, The next one is harvesting, which is uprooting or severing any part of a living plant. Uh, Breaking off a tree, uh, removing a leaf, picking a fruit, even kicking a dandelion would be included under this category. Uh, The next one is gathering fruits. Uh, so if someone were to consolidate things which grew from the ground for a constructive purpose. So, uh, for example, someone rakes leaves because they want to dive into the leaf pile. So if you want to rake leaves, you're piling things that grew from the ground for a constructive purpose. That will be included in this. Uh, the next step is to thresh. Is That's when you have a uh, wheat kernel that's covered with chaff and straw. You want to kind of separate the food from the non-edible items, and that would be uh, similar, for example, to squeezing juice from a fruit. It's the same kind of thing. You have the juice that you want. It's kind of captured in the fruit. You squeeze it. That would be a subcategory of that. Uh, the next one is uh, one that's very not relevant, I would say, and that's um, winnowing. That's when you throw something, you throw the um, grain in the air and you let the wind blow the lighter chaff away and then the grain actually drops down. So you make a pile, uh, the, the, the wind goes away and uh, the all you're left is things that you're desirous of. A borer is separating. Uh, so you have a mixture. You remove the things that you don't desire from that mixture. Uh, grinding, you take the 
wheat kernel and you grind it down into flour. So that's kind of reduction of a large entity into smaller parts. Uh, so for example, grinding coffee on Shabbos is an exact parallel to this. You have a coffee bean and you want to kind of take and grind it into a smaller parts would be included in this. Uh, so then you sift the flour because there's still, you're still separating some parts. So again, using a sifter to remove unwanted matter from a mixture will be included in this. Uh, then you want to make the dough. So you have to grind it. I'm sorry. You have to knead it. Uh, that's combining two ingredients into a dough. Now, interestingly, instant coffee would be okay, even though you have the similar kind of thing. You have water, you have coffee, and you're mixing them into a mixture. That would be okay for a few reasons. First of all, it's not a dough. Second of all, the, uh, the coffee is pre-cooked. So it's different. This is only you take two ingredients like water and flour and combine them into a, uh, a dough. Uh, we have baking and cooking. People spend literally six months studying the exact details of this. That, that's heating up a substance, food or non-food, until the substance changes in a positive way, which again, very general premise, which can be applied in a lot of different ways. There is probably a million different variables of this question. But again, we were trying to get just the general, um, the general overview. Now, the Talmud tells us that these first 11 are what's called sidur de pas, the order of making bread. All those activities from plowing until you actually bake it, those are the 11 different steps of making bread. Each one of them will be considered its own category, again, with a general premise that's the premise of the category and many subcategories that are derived from it. The next is how do you make garments? So you have a, you, you have to make a wool garment. How do you do that? So first you have to shear the sheep. So, which is again, separating any part from the body. So sharing hair would be the same premise as that. Or, or cut nails, same kind of thing. You're cutting off parts, uh, from the, the rest of the body. Okay. Then there's a laundering a soiled garment which the general premise of it is cleansing a fabric uh, of any color by any means, which is a very general prohibition. So uh, you can think of laundering with, with water or something dirty falls on your pants. So if you just kind of steam the top off, it will be okay. But once you start scrubbing it, that's this, that's this general rule. But in addition, so, you know, someone, this is a very common example. Someone has some dust on their pants, you know, so kind of removing just the surface layer is okay, but kind of hitting it off, or kind of striking it until it goes off, that would be included in this as well. Uh, then there's a, a list of things that are not as relevant um, because we don't really, in today's economy, we don't really actually produce our garments by hand. Uh, but they used to actually kind of comb out the hairs of the wool and then dye them and then spin them into fabric and then put them into the loom. So there's all kinds of steps involved with the loom, uh, weaving them and then unraveling the fabric and then tying it. So tying is, an, is, is a common uh, thing that comes up. So tying, it, it's only prohibitive if it's a double knot. So for example, you take out the garbage. So you take out the bag and you tie it. You go throw it into the trash can. So that's okay. You tie it twice, you just created a double knot. Double knot's a problem. One knot, no problem. One knot in a bow, no problem. A double knot, that would be included. Because it's, it's considered a more permanent knot, yes. 
It's if it's something that you would not undo. It's it's meant to be done permanently. That's included in in, in this category. Uh, so for example, a thing that comes up commonly, you have tzitzis or you have a, t- a talit, and sometimes the ends over here. This this is a double knot. You have five double knots in your tzitzis. This sometimes becomes loose, so you might want to tighten it. That would be prohibited on Shabbos to tighten your tzitzis or talis in a in a way that is going to be permanent. However, so sometimes if it's very loose and it's really coming apart, you could tighten it, but not tighten it to the degree that it won't move. Just kind of make it less loose. That would be okay. Uh, now, the opposite is untying, which is the next, the 22nd one. And then there's sewing, and then there's ripping, and there's uh, – so the, those are – those next uh, 13 are the various steps in making in making garments. And then there's the steps of making hides. You have to trap the animal. You have to slaughter the animal. You have to skin the animal. You have to tan the leather. You got to smooth out the leather. And then sometimes you want to cut the leather into parts. So first you dot. You make like a line where you want to cut, and then you cut in a very precise way. So those two are also considered their own separate categories. Uh, a, scoring, which is preparing the, 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 the lines to be cut, and then cutting precisely. So the reason why we don't cut toilet paper on Shabbos is because it's perforated. And when something's perforated, it's supposed to be cut in a very precise way. And that would be the problem, because it would be considered mechatech, cutting precisely, which is really defined more broadly, cutting any item to a specific desired and precise size. So for example, aluminum foil, you're cutting it alongside an edge and creating a perfect line that is exactly mechatech, that's cutting very precisely. Uh, even sharpening a pencil, you're cutting off things to, again, achieve a pre- precise and desired result. So those will be included under number 31. And just quickly running through the rest of them, uh, writing, uh, erasing, building, which again is all forms of construction and assembly, demolishing, completing your vessel, which is a really interesting thing, which is the last final hammer blow. Uh, you have a, a, a vessel that you're hammering down and that last blow is considered its own category of work. Thus, any action that you do to actualize a Vessel or garment is considered makamapatish. So if there's something, let's say you have a, uh, you have a new garment and it just has like one string that's kind of like your job to kind of do it, to, to finish it. Or, uh, an example, maybe you have, uh, uh, you get plastic forks and, uh, in the factory, they didn't cut them perfectly. So you have to kind of separate the two by yourself. That's considered you're, you're finishing a product that would be its own category. Again, taking a product or an item, or a vessel that's almost completely done and just finishing it, that's the number 36, uh, extinguishing a flame, kindling a flame, and finally carrying from one domain to another domain, uh, either from a p- private domain to a public domain, a public domain to a private domain, or within a public domain, that would be number 39. There are other laws uh, relating to non-Jews, so telling non-Jews to do work for you will be prohibited under certain circumstances. There's also the idea of malaches machsheves, which means that the actions have to, from a biblical perspective at least, the activities are only prohibited from a biblical perspective if they're done in a professional or craftsman kind of way. So there's all kinds of categories of, of activities that are not professional or they're uh, they're not done in a craftsman way, and that would render something from being 
um, biblically prohibited to maybe only being rabbinically prohibited and maybe in certain ways would be allowed entirely. So that's a very, very brief run through some of those laws. But again, it's important not to get bogged down with the details. Well, it is important to get bogged down with the details. But at least from a philosophical perspective, all those laws are to clear the path so we can have a day of closeness with God, a day of connection, a day of spiritual ascension, clearing away, uh, stopping to act like her creator and realizing that God is the creator and fostering and developing and deepening and nurturing and sustaining our relationship that we have with him.